Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. If I could invite everyone to take their seats and, and please do begin eating. Our members know to do that. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. It's good to see so many people here. I know a lot of people are just planning to spend the day with the World Affairs Council. Lunch and then a nice reception this evening at the Angelica Theater. So we thank all of you for, for your support. also really want to express our uh, appreciation to the Council on Foreign Relations because uh, today's program is very much a cooperative effort with the New York-based Council, and it's awfully nice of them to share their resident scholars with us, and we hope that it is a tradition that will continue. For those of you who may be guests, I hope that you'll pick up a brochure that's in your chair. If you, I, I bet by looking at this crowd, you'll probably be sitting with a member, and you members, you know what to do, right? That's right. Someone teased me this morning. They said, it's just like going to church. I said, that's okay. That's all right. As long as they become members, uh, we're happy. Now, what is everybody doing on May 5th? Exactly. And have you told your friends about Bono? Have you sent emails to your friends? Ladies and gentlemen, there are still a few tickets to sell. And those tickets are in the $50 and $100 range. And so we want this to be sold out. And uh, we, we need your support to make that happen. If you have any questions, please give me a call about that. also want to highlight some special programs that are coming up. And one of those is next uh, April 25th, David Abney. And this program is brought to you by our good friend, Ryan Hill. Ryan, stand up and let everybody thank you for your support. <clears throat> Ryan is with Morgan Stanley, and he is making it possible for us to bring in David Abney, the president of UPS International. And for those of you, and I know all of you have, who read Tom Friedman's book last year, uh, he went into considerable detail about what the brown suits with UPS are doing and how they're changing the world. So please consider that program. Also want to remind you that next week we will also, on April 27th, have Rob Litwack, who is the Director of International Studies at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and again showing the brilliance of the planning committee of the International Perspective Series, will be focusing on a topic that is clearly hot right now, and that is weapons proliferation. Pat Patterson will be introducing our our speaker in a few minutes, but uh, I want to give a personal plug about this book. I was very honest with Rachel, told her that I had gotten the book two days ago, and read the uh, forward and read about the last 100 pages uh, where it starts talking about September 11th and beyond, and she told me about how her mother does the same thing, but hopefully not with her book. But I promised her that I'm going to read. Pat Patterson, is that your phone? $25 right there. Thank you very much. Give a hand to that. But there have been so many books that have been written about Saudi Arabia, especially since 9-11, and they all truly seem to me to have had a political agenda. This book is written by a scholar. It is very balanced, and 
If you've not yet bought the book, which must be impossible, go out now during your lunch. Please consider purchasing the book. It's a book that you'll be proud to have on your, in your library. Enjoy your lunch, and Pat will be back in a few minutes. My name is Patricia Patterson, and I'm chairman of the board of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I work for Jim Falk and the staff, and uh, I think they do the best job of anybody I've ever seen, and we should recognize them more often. Um, a program to, like the one we're about to hear today is the reason that the World Affairs Council exists. Uh, this is, uh, uh, Rachel has been working on this book for several years. She and I have been become friends in the course of that. And I'm going to do something that I never do do. I am going to read my introduction of Rachel today because I want you all to get the full impact of what this woman brings to her subject. So, um, Rachel is a senior fellow at the, and a director of Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, where she has recently concluded her book. She co-directed a January 2003 report called Guiding Principles for U.S. Post-Conflict Policy in Iraq. And that was one of the most profound books on the subject, studies on the subject. And had we followed Rachel's suggestions in that, and you might find that that's an interesting question for her. It's a little off of her, her announced topic today, but it's a very interesting thing that she did there. And uh, I think the State Department called her in when we were already in Iraq and said, by the way, you wrote a pretty good book here. Do you think we ought to be doing something different from what we're doing? And by then it was already... Um, uh, not quite what she would have envisioned. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's an interesting thing. Um, she has testified before the Congressional Anti-Terrorist Finance Task Force, before Congress's Joint Economic Committee, and before the 9-11 Commission. She's the recipient of the Carnegie Corporation's 2003 Carnegie Scholars Award. She has served as a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and a fellow at Harvard's Center for Science and International Affairs. She's also served as a consultant to NBC News and the Center for Naval Analyses. Her writing has appeared in publications such as Foreign Affairs, the Washington Quarterly, The National Interest, Survival, The New York Times, and The International Herald Tribune. She has commented extensively in the media, appearing on television and radio in the Jim Lehrer NewsHour, CNN, NBC, BBC, NPR, WashingtonPost.com, The Charlie Rose Show, Al Jazeera, and, inevitably, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Um, Dr. Bronson received her doctorate from Columbia University in political science in 1997. That is the official Rachel. I will tell you that Rachel is expecting her second baby now. She has done the work on this book while she had the first one. She is a good mom. She is a wonderful person in addition to being the scholar of the day, the year, and the month. And my friends, so thank you, Rachel, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. When, uh, can you hear me okay back there? Whenever anybody mentions that I've been on The Daily Show, that usually takes the first 20 minutes of questions and answers. <laughs> what was it like? Um, Ed Helms is a really nice guy. Um, I'm delighted to be here today. I'm delighted to be finished with the book and to be able to talk about it um, rather than to be in the midst of it. And um, Pat's right. I'm expecting my, my second child. The first one's four and a half. 
And I usually think of this book as my second child, and so we're really expecting our third. Um, but the subject today is uh, U.S.-Saudi relations. And I think that it's, it, it, it continues to be a very, very vital conversation uh, to have. No relationship is as important as under pressure and as poorly understood, I believe, as the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Saudi Arabia, of course, sits astride one quarter of the world's proven resources, oil resources, and the United States is heavily reliant on access to Saudi airspace and ground assets um, for a number of issues, including the recent 2003 uh, Iraqi invasion. 1.2 billion Muslims around the world look to Mecca and Medina as their religious center of gravity. At the same time, 15 of the 19 hijackers, as we're well aware, on September 11th came from the kingdom. And by some accounts, one quarter of those who cycled through training camps in Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s were from the kingdom. Today, notwithstanding the good cordial relations that have evolved out of the presidential meeting with then Crown Prince, now King Abdullah, at Crawford in 2005, this continues to be a very troubled relationship. Conventional wisdom tells us that the core of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is built on a very basic and simple bargain of oil for security. Oil, of course, is very important to the United States, just as it is to the Saudis themselves. The kingdom, after all, relies on their uh, oil export earnings for about 90 to 95 percent of their earnings. Oil affects every relationship that the kingdom has. Even more importantly than its absolute holdings is the fact that Saudi Arabia is the swing producer, the central banker of oil, if you will. It has disproportionate influence over global oil prices and holds upwards of 85 to 90 percent of OPEC's spare capacity. That means the world's spare capacity. Which, given problems in Venezuela, Nigeria, and Algeria, Iran, and elsewhere, has come to mean uh, the bulk of the, the spare capacity. Should Nigeria's political situation devolve or Venezuelan oil workers strike, hurricanes damage U.S. facilities, the only place that can quickly put on volumes of oil is Saudi Arabia. And those examples aren't hypothetical. All those areas, Venezuela, Nigeria, and, and U.S. facilities were damaged or under pressure in the lead-up to the Iraq War when the Saudis put a million dollars per day onto the market to keep prices stable. In return for greasing the international economic wheel, Saudi Arabia gains um, access to considerable U.S. training and equipment, and the United States extends over it a security umbrella. Since the Truman administration in 1950, every United States president has committed to the territorial integrity of Saudi Arabia. The oil for security bargain has not always been smooth. There have been oil embargoes, notably, but not limited to 1973. And there have been many congressional restrictions for what, what arms can go to Saudi Arabia. Tensions permeate the entire history of this relationship. But by and large, the basic bargain is held. And that's where the conventional thinking on Saudi Arabia usually stops, as does the conversation. But stop and think a minute about whether oil in and of itself is fully explanatory to close U.S.-Saudi relations. For all but six of the 36 years between 1967 and 2003, the United States had no political relations with Iraq, 
a country whose oil holdings are estimated to be one, uh, 115 billion barrels, second only to Saudi Arabia. Iran, with 10% of the world's oil, has lived under U.S. sanctions for more than 25 years. Libya has, had experienced 19 years of American-led sanctions. In 2002, administration, the Bush administration quietly encouraged an unsuccessful e extra-legal effort to remove Hugo Chavez. In the fall of 2004, the United States actively encouraged international sanctions against Sudan's oil exports. Successive U.S. administrations have shown a clear willingness to forego cl close relations with oil-producing states. Having a lot of oil does not necessarily translate into close relations with the United States. Now, American policies of sanctioning and cutting off relations with oil producers was ma has made Saudi Arabia's position ever stronger. And the reverse is true as well. Good U.S.-Saudi relations have given Washington decision makers the flexibility to sanction the production of others. This, though, still begs the question why the U.S. has sustained such strong relations with Saudi Arabia. What I'd like to suggest to you today, and what the book spends a lot of time developing, is that shared interests during the Cold War explain the character of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, one that has always been more than a business relationship around oil, and one whose roots have profound consequences for some of the challenges and opportunities we face in our world today. During the Cold War, Saudi Arabia and America shared an important interest in combating the Soviet Union, which and it provided a protective political layer that enveloped oil and defense interests. The end of the Cold War explains why relations deteriorated so quickly after September 11th, not oil interests alone. It is, also, it is also our and Saudi Arabia's Cold War policies that I believe help explain why radical Islamic movements have burst onto our radar screen today and so violently. Understanding better the Cold War context will help suggest ways to move forward in the 21st century. In my book, I talk about three pillars of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, and I call the chapter where I discuss it oil, God, and real estate. For the purposes of today's conversation, I'd like to focus on the second pillar, religion, because, the insight it provides today, because of the insights it provides today for understanding the political landscape. Ideologically, the fact that Saudi Arabia can claim to speak for Mecca and Medina has meant that it has been a very useful country for the United States to call a friend, especially because Saudi Arabia helped in the fight against quote-unquote godless communism. In a neat division of labor, the Saudis could fight godlessness and we would fight communism. Given that Soviet-inspired communism was based on a hostility to religious belief, the more religious a country the more likely it would be to rail against communism and look towards the United States. King Abdulaziz, the founder of the kingdom, known to us here most commonly as Ibn Saud, wanted little to do with the Soviets very early on and banished the Soviet ambassador for the kingdom in 1938. Official relations between Russia and Saudi Arabia were not reestablished until 1990. When Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, toured the Middle East, visiting every major leader, and Eisenhower wrote letters of introduction for him, the letter to the Saudi king was the only one to mention the shared interest in fighting godless communism. American presidents also hoped that the theocratic Saudi Arabia could serve as a counter to the more reactionary secular nationalism that swept through the region in the 1950s and 60s. 
American decision makers referred somewhat optimistically to King Saud, who then reigned from 53 to 64 as a quote-unquote Islamic pope. And I devote a whole chapter to that because the notion that the, of an Islamic pope being so important back in the early 50s, I think, is very important evidence to the role of, how, of religion and how we were seeing its utility during the Cold War. During the 50s, President Eisenhower encouraged King Saud to become the religious and political counter to a charismatic Nasser, a role that the Saudi leaders were more than happy to take up because they themselves saw Egypt as their primary threat regionally, as well as the backer, the so their, their main backer being the Soviet Union. The 1970s represents probably the most interesting period of showing Saudi Arabia's fight in uh, turning back communism. We know, of course, that in 1973, oil prices quadrupled and then spiked again in 1979. But where did that money go? Much went to infrastructure development at home, and a lot was invested abroad. But with revenues reaching tens of billions of dollars, there was more than enough left to finance a fair number of foreign operations. And Saudi Arabia put its money into three main baskets. Islamic organizations, anti-Soviet operations, and pro-Palestinian non-Marxist groups. The three often overlapped, and when they did, the Saudis gave even more money. According to data from Saudi Arabia's Minister of Finance and National Econ Economy, in 1972, Saudi Arabia gave in foreign aid $220 million. In 1974, that number increased to $4 billion. In 1977, Newsweek estimated that Saudi Arabia provided more than $6 billion in foreign military aid to a number of countries. Many of these countries, like Egypt, Jordan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Sudan, had significant Cold War importance. I'd like to read to, to you what Jim Hoagland had to say in 1977 in the Washington Post. Those of you who follow the Washington Post, you know he's still a very active commentator. And I think this is very striking. He says in this quote, The Saudis are spending billions of dollars, 1977, in an arc of influence that extends from Morocco eastward across Africa and the Middle East and deep into Asia. It is an arc that, by design or by accident, could easily have been traced by an American administration eager to help overcome new difficulties in persuading Congress to appropriate money for such causes. Did Saudi Arabia do this only to please America or because it was perceived in its national interests? King Faisal in particular, from 19, who reigned from 64 to 75, was a tried and true anti-communist. Saudi Arabia didn't just sit around waiting for the United States to ask it to do something. It sought others out, other international partners out, to roll back communism, such as France, Morocco, Iran, and Egypt. And here's the, one of the most interesting developments during this period that I had the most fun researching and looking it into. And it's received far too little attention until recently. In 1976, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, France, and Iran formed something called the Safari Club, the name taken because it sounded exotically African. It was set up by intelligence ministers and held its first meeting in 1976 in Riyadh, and the goal was to stop the Soviet penetration of Africa. If the United States could not or would not repel the Soviets, this group would do so. And the Safari Club helped reverse a coup in Zaire and wean Somalia from Soviet clutches. Its efforts were directly intended to combat Soviet penetration. But here's the rub. Where Saudi money and interests went, so did its proselytizing. 
a proselytizing that was austere, intolerant, xenophobic, and a very particular interpretation of Islam that had until that point not been widely shared. Consider how this all worked in Sudan. Sudan was geopolitically very sensitive because it spanned the strategic territory separating Libya and Ethiopia, both heavily backed by the Soviet Union. Riyadh, Cairo, Paris, and Washington warily eyed expanding Libyan influence in Sudan's Darfur region, a region that continues to be the center po- uh, an important area of focus. Within a decade, Libyan agents were able to traverse northern Sudan unmolested and even ended up mining the Red Sea at one point. Saudi Arabia worried about Sudan's Communist Party, once the largest in any Arab country. In 1975, the CIA observed that Saudi aid helped the government of Sudan, quote, survive le- leftist efforts to bring it down. From 1975 to 76, Saudi aid to the Sudan increased from 25 to $165 million. In Sudan, Saudi proselytizing was accompanied its, its Cold War funding. In 1977, the Faisal Islamic Bank opened a branch in Sudan, which became a financial provider to local Islamists. As importantly, Saudi Arabia welcomed Sudanese workers to the kingdom to fill jobs for its quickly expanding economy. And after 1973, more than a million Sudanese expatriates worked inside the kingdom. I had a student uh, who worked on Sudan for a paper of his, and what he really uncovered was also the role that the Muslim Brotherhood started to play. They were a natural conduit between Sudanese workers and Saudi Arabia, the Saudi officials feeling very comfortable to work at this time with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood would help recruit people in Saudi Arabia and Sudan, that was easy, who wanted to go work in Saudi Arabia. They would provide them the jobs, the community, the social networks. And then when they came back, they would be members of the Muslim Brotherhood, give money back to the Muslim Brotherhood, which would then recruit more. And so the role of the Muslim Brotherhood became increasingly powerful in Sudan and had an effect on Sudanese politics for the decades that followed. That was all in the mid-70s, but things got even more dramatic in the late 70s. 1979 is a period in the chapter in my book I call the watershed. What happens in 1979? Three things that, that happened in close succession. The first was that you had the Iran hostage situation, the return of Ayatollah Khomeini, the return of Khomeini back to Iran, and then his growing role in Iranian politics. This was very, very nerve-wracking for the Saudis. Suddenly, a new religious figure was on the political landscape, willing to, uh, or claiming to speak for um, Muslims worldwide. This provided a deep threat to, to Saudi Arabia. This is in the beginning to mid-1979. In November, of, of 1979, rebels seized the Grand Mosque of Mecca. Sunni fundamentalists took over the Grand Mosque of Mecca for the first time since 1929, challenging the legitimacy of the House of Saud on a religious basis. Just weeks after that, Soviets invaded Afghanistan, a Muslim state. To, to answer each of these challenges, the Saudis looked to religion to combat both international and domestic threats. And that is when I believe you get a true radicalization of the Saudi interpretation of Islam. That is when women stopped appearing on television. That is when uh, women's salons were shuttered. That is when you began getting posters to go fight the jihad everywhere, where math teachers began teaching the jihad to fourth graders, stories that I heard when I was over there doing some interviews. It was a real radicalization 
in Saudi society back to a very, very austere interpretation, in many ways, of Wahhabi Islam, something that hadn't, that had, strands of it had always been there, but it, had never been, it hadn't been embraced politically for over 50 years. As a result of Reagan coming to power in the 1980s, you've got this merging of U.S.-Saudi interests, especially around Afghanistan. This, this increased religiosity was very useful to the Reagan administration because it helped get fighters up to fight the jihad. It wasn't that they were looking to promote the, anti, uh, the xenophobic notions of, of what the Saudis were teaching, but they didn't really much care. What mattered was that you preached, not really what you preached. And you, this convergence of interests vis-a-vis Iran and Afghanistan drew the two countries together and many around the globe in ways that were, were notably stronger and different than in the past. Afghanistan, of course, is the best example of, of the coming together. In Afghanistan, the United States and Saudi Arabia partnered in pushing out the Soviets. But it's not the only place that this happened, and that's why the 70s in Africa and events in South Asia are so important. Shared anti-communism embedded in the U.S.-Saudi partnership stretched from Somalia, Sudan, Chad, Pakistan, and beyond. The politicization of religion was considered well worth the risks. Consider what Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, said, quote, this was, this was in the, the mid-1990s when he was reflecting back. What was more important in the worldview of history, the Taliban or the fall of the Soviet Empire, a few stirred-up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? These are conscious decisions made, not because they were necessarily even the wrong decisions, because they were very, very hard decisions to make. During most of the period, the, Sa- the Soviets pre- presented a mortal threat and we used everything at our disposal to defeat it. And one of the tools that we did was the politicization of religion. The, I think the real criticism comes after that episode ends in the 1990s, where very little is done to try to either combat a growing threat or roll back some of the extremism that was spawned as a result of past political decisions. Throughout the 90s, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia actually began to fall apart. Not surprisingly, that's when many of our relations with many of our allies began to fall apart. The justification for the, for the relationship that had been so clear for 50 years for all different partnerships had begun to fall away. And the U.S. and Saudi officials began struggling over issues such as Palestine and Israel, issues over Iraq strategy and Afghanistan. And I, what I'd like to suggest, and I think the evidence bears it out, is that the real deterioration in, relig- in, in relationship doesn't happen in 9-11. That was what drew our attention to it. But it had been building over a decade. So what does that all mean for today? First, that Saudi Arabia has a foreign policy. They're not just doing our dirty work, as the term I serve here when I go to Saudi Arabia, we're just doing your dirty work. But that it's a woefully underappreciated, understudied subject And it bears exploring because they do have a foreign policy, they do have national interests, and they do pursue them in ways now that I think present some challenges for the United States. So, And let's return back to where we started. Oil is still incredibly important, although in many ways I would argue Saudi Arabia has more options today than it did a few years, a couple decades ago. In a Newsweek interview last year, Saudi Arabia's Foreign Minister Prince Saud boldly stated that Saudi Arabia and China have a strategic relationship. 
since China, since China is the number one recipient of Saudi oil. King Abdullah's first trip was to China, and Crown Prince Sultan has actually just returned for, from Japan. Asia is on the radar screen as, as new partners for the Saudis to pursue and consider. We will still maintain a business relationship with Saudi Arabia, largest producer, largest consumer. There's natural interest there. But the Saudis are no longer as dependent on the United States for all of their political and economic needs as they were in past years. Real estate is still very important. We still, they were, Saudis were important to us in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's still some of the shared, there are important shared concerns around Iran that are first and foremost about where Saudi Arabia physically sits. But God and religion is really what's at stake today. And the question of whether the Saudis were or against us was never, I would say, about their oil policy. The real question for the U.S. US policymakers in Saudi Arabia today have to do centrally with the, ro the role that the Saudis are playing in the propagation of a certain kind of religion, terrorist financing, intolerance preached at home, etc. And this is why a re-examination of the historical record has been so important. We have to understand that Saudi Arabia's actions took place within a context that we sanctioned. We did not push them to, to preach intolerance. We just didn't really care what they preached. So long as religion was used to help inoculate the next generation against atheist communism, it was okay. And why the Arab world has turned to political Islam is in part a response to globalization and modernization and all the other things we hear about, but is also a result of a global strategy we, we pursued in the fight against communism. It is why I'm skeptical that democratization is the key to reducing terrorism and Islamic radicalism. The administration's strategy is based on the logic that a disenfranchised Muslims, unable to express their political interests peacefully, are now doing so violently. Opening up political space, therefore, will reduce the violence, at least in the long run. Perhaps. But there are plenty of authoritarian states in the world where we don't see that kind of violence and terrorism. And rather, the violence has, rather, I believe, the violence has been stoked and cultivated for decades to secure political ends. Opening up political space too quickly only hands victories to radical and violent Islamist groups, as we've seen in Gaza and elsewhere. Democracy is good. It's in our DNA and we should promote it. But we should be under no illusions that democratization will reduce religiously inspired terrorism that permeates the Middle East. The key to reducing the violence, and we've known this since the days after 9-11, are continuing to shut down and monitor money flows and denying havens like Afghanistan and Iraq for terrorists to meet, equip, and to train. This is why the administration has rightfully pursued warmer relations with Saudi Arabia over the last few years, it is their belief and our belief that Saudi Arabia is making important strides on these key issues. It's not the House of Saud, House of Bush conspiracy we, saw so much, we hear so much about, but rather what the key issues are that are important and Saudi's ability to make strides on those areas. So with that, there's a sort of a mouthful, and let me stop and take your questions and happy to talk about other issues right now involved in U.S.-Saudi relations or anything else you want to talk about. Thank you. With the Wahhabi control of the schools. Education is one of the top issues, I think, in the Middle East today, certainly in Saudi Arabia. 
with oil now reaching $70 a barrel, there's a lot of money coming in um, to state coffers. And the, Sa the Saudis have just put 25% of their budget is allotted to education. The challenge for Saudi Arabia, and in my book I talk about it, sort of the struggle for the Saudi soul, is some of the most uh, sort of conservative elements control these social institutions, education being one of them. So what are, what are the more pragmatic Saudis trying to do? They're trying to create a host of alternatives. Um, so you've seen the king has supported 5,000 new visas to come to the United States trying to prov provide alternatives outside of the kingdom. What you're also seeing is this flourishing of private schools and attempt and, and pilot programs from the state about what kind of curriculums can be taught there. Efforts to get outside of the religious establishment because um, some of the most radical in them control the institutions. I think those are very important steps and steps that are in the right direction. But it doesn't take care of public education where most of the students go through. And I think the Saudis are betting that their elites and to continue to educate their elites will largely see them through. But in terms of education at home, there is, for the public schools, there's also the understanding around many that you simply must have better education to prepare students for the global market that their students are absolutely unemployable, that there's nothing that they can do, which means they sit around unemployed and they're easy pickings for radicals. That's some of the conclusions that they've drawn from both September 11th and their own, attack, the own their attacks that happened in Saudi Arabia in 2003. And so I think there's an acknowledgement that education is the answer. I don't think they know quite how to get there. So 25% of the budget, that's a lot of money going to education, is a very good thing. Infrastructure needs to be built and refurbished. But until they make more drastic changes on their curriculum and education in general, they're gonna, they, and they know this, they're going to continue to have real problems. And it's part of the struggle between the, what I see as zealots and pragmatists inside Saudi Arabia today. Well, let me just sort of take that question on, on weapons of mass destruction and, and talk about Iran for a little bit. Um, Right now, obviously, Iran is the sort of key issue in Iran's um, weapons of mass destruction program. So where, where do the Saudis fit into all this? I sort of alluded to the fact that their strategic location, in a sense, puts them into a camp with the United States. Saudis are very, very worried about Iran. They are very worried about Iran for a whole host of reasons. Weapons of mass destruction is one of them. What's notable about, on weapons of mass destruction, and I want to go into some other issues, what's notable about weapons of mass destruction, about the Saudis and their view is, Saudis have always taken the stance, as many Arab states in, in the region have, which is they are promoting a nuclear-free Middle East, that is, vis-a-vis -vis Israel, that the nuclear-free Middle East. Lately, their rhetoric has changed. They still talk about a nuclear-free Middle East. Everyone's still worried about the Israeli nuclear program. But what the foreign minister is saying now on, with greater frequency is they're trying to promote first and foremost a nuclear-free Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf. That circumscribing of the geography is very, very important. What that's code word for is we're very worried about their nuclear program. In addition, since, certainly since 79, the Saudis have been very, very worried about Iran both in terms of religious, Shia versus Sunni, 
in terms of ethnic Persian versus Arab, but also plain geopolitics, a very powerful neighbor on their border. The Saudis are now talking about Iran with the president, President Ahmadinejad, as the return to Ayatollah, to, uh, sorry, return to Khomeiniism. This fear that they don't really know what he wants, which for the Saudis, who often play both sides of things, that's really problematic. Um, but they don't know what he wants, and so they don't know what to do about it. Geopolitically, if you look from the Saudis, I mean, one thing that I found interesting in the research, the Saudis, what drives Saudi foreign policy is this fear of encirclement. They were worried about British encirclement in the early years and Soviet encirclement. And now there's a good case to be made that they're worried about Iranian encirclement. Think about what the map looks like from Saudi Arabia. You've got Ahmadinejad in a sort of very empowered Iran uh, to their east. You've got, you've got Iranian penetration certainly in Afghanistan. Iraq, you have dramatically increasing presence of Iranians in Iraq. Iran continues to back Hezbollah in Lebanon. And we just saw the $50 million pledge by the Iranians to Hamas in, uh, for, for, the, for Palestinians. If you look at the map, this, the Iranians are very much emboldened. They're very much on, on the move. Every misstep by the United States is being... Uh, taken up and by, by the Iranians. So the Saudis are incredibly worried. What does that mean? I mean, they have options in what, how to respond to the nuclear threat. They're having conversations with the Americans, but they are very worried about the Iranians. And that is, in many ways, pushes them back to relations with the United States because we share that interest. But there is a lack of confidence that we actually know what we're doing for very good reason. And so there's an interest in trying to, to figure out what others can offer and bring to the table. I don't think they're going to find that much. But some of their interest in China may very well be trying to woo the Chinese away from growing Chinese-Iranian relations so that they can develop some sort of leverage over Iran that way. There's so many oil people in this room, I'd imagine, that I'd really like them to stand up. Um, <laughs> But let me take a shot at it. Um, the term, you know, what, what I would see more, what, what I think is actually maybe a sort of more interesting part of the story, because it plays out, it, it, it cuts across, though, the, the, uh, the oil companies as well as national oil companies, because some of the ones I'll talk about are national which is just recently, the Saudis had a, a number of very important contracts out that would have normally gone to the United States companies, oil companies, um, that didn't. They went to Sinopec, they went to the Chinese, and went to Total. Um, so it went to the and, and it, so it went to the French. It went to to the Chinese, um, and it, it went to the Russians too. The Russians won some of it. Um, that was very notable because the U.S. Was, U.S. companies are, were usually the beneficiaries of that. Now, the, what the U.S. companies will say and the Saudis will say, and they're right on this, is this was decided purely for economic reasons. I mean, let's set aside that three of those, three of those were Security Council votes <laughs> that the contracts went to. But this was done for very good economic reasons, made a lot of sense. And that was their story, and they were sticking to it. Um, the, the difference now is that in the past, it was very economically rational. In the past, decisions were not made for purely economically rational 
justification. There was always a very overt political layer to the stories of why and how the contracts went to the Americans. Legacies, they trusted them better, but also that sort of security guarantee that went along with it. Now decisions are making, being done on an economically sound rationale. But that is a shift. We shouldn't be under the illusions that, that something hasn't changed. And so when they go back, when American companies who have lost out or Saudi, uh, the Saudi officials say, this is just an economic decision, they're absolutely right. But that isn't how it was always done. So the Saudis, in an effort to make things more economically efficient and to be good businessmen and go out and make sure that they explore the markets in China and Japan and India, where everyone else is exploring, it is good economic business sense. But I also do believe that they are trying to see what other options they have out there now that they have lost confidence in America's interest, willingness or ability uh, to help them out of some of the jams that they're in. Yeah, I think some of the aspects of the sort of anti-communist, godless communism, that's, that has receded as the global context has changed. And so there's not the history of working with the Chinese, and that will put the Chinese at a disadvantage in, in certain kinds of negotiations. But some of that, that, um, that hesitancy of working with the Russians or the, or the Chinese has, has fallen as the global context has changed. I mean, they, the, the, it, it sort of morphed in some ways, the sort of concern over sort of the religiosity, because a lot of that, the Saudi-inspired religiosity and supported, has then morphed into terrorist groups, not one and the same, but it's sort of out um, uh, derivative of some of the more aggressive lines of, of, of religious theology that they were pushing. And so the issue there is, is largely about counterterrorism and sort of efforts at the Saudi effort in combating their own Islamic radicals, al-Qaeda on the peninsula. So where are the Saudis in terms of terrorist financing? Sort of a, a big question. Um, in many ways, the Saudis have made very important strides. And that is why I believe that relations between Washington and Riyadh have improved. What are some of those strides? Um, they have rounded up 2,000 clerics a couple years ago, either remove them from preaching, or else put them through re-education programs. Um, they, they, um, financing, charitable financing laws have changed. Um, there's much more accountability at home. It is a lot harder to open up a charitable account, especially one that sends money abroad. Um, Charitable funding has increased inside the kingdom 300% in the last couple years. Less money is going out, more staying at home where they can watch it. Um, boxes have been taken out of malls and, and mosques if they, they can't be sort of, if they're not under accountability. These are all really important changes um, and ones that the U.S. administration watched very carefully um, and, and thought was sort of a good thing. There's still problems. There's still real problems. Money is still individuals, uh, wealthy individuals, still send money to bad causes. Before I get to the problems, let me talk about some, actually some very interesting problems this caused. So the Saudis have put through this sort of blanket rule on opening charitable accounts. I was out in the eastern province in February where I was visiting someone who had opened up a um, handicap facility, this magnificent program where um, handicapped kids come in and they can get their therapy and go to school in the same building, easier for the parents, easier for the kids. They can't open a bank account to invest in the booming Saudi stock market 
because they're a charity. And because of banking laws, they can't, you can't open up the name in a charity. So it's sort of now it's the, there's a lot of negative backlash when you, you try to control charities where a good portion of them are actually doing good things. So where the problem now and where the U.S. government is, I think, rightfully focused is, so Saudis have put through their banking laws, and um, they've done a loophole for what they call multilateral, multilateral, multilateral organizations. These are the big charities that operate out of Jeddah and get a lot of money from the Gulf. Things like the Muslim World League, World Assembly of Muslim Youth, and some others. Now, these charities actually do a lot of good work. But by setting them aside and saying somehow these are different, these are like the big daddies of charities, it raised a lot of red flags. Now, the Saudis have come back and said, look, we monitor those as well as we do others, but for political reasons at home and our own history, these charities were established back in the 1960s to combat Nasser. We can't just put them under the other, uh, these general laws. The administration is very concerned about that, and they're saying that you actually need to. Then the Saudis are saying, well, we are. We are doing this. Since money is still sloshing about in Iraq and other places, there's some skepticism. Um, but that's where, but the issues now are becoming, I think, more focused and therefore more appropriate because that is an appropriate place for U.S. officials to engage Saudi officials. What's not appropriate is the sort of general Saudi bashing, I think, that goes on that prevents a lot of important legislation. Um, WTO accession. We should very much want Saudi Arabia to be part of the WTO. It's part of their efforts to open up their, um, their economic environment and engage with the outside world. This is good. This is what we should want. And yet Congress sent around, some members of Congress sent around a petition to prevent Saudi Arabia from joining the WTO. That was nonsense. It was against our own self-interest. So I think it's very important to focus on areas of genuine concern and areas where we really do have problems rather than divert our attention to any legislation or anything that happens with Saudi Arabia must be bad because it's the Saudis. And that's one of the things anyway that I, I try to do in the book, try to sort out what I think are important policy issues and what are just Saudi bashing that distract us. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And obviously the, the issue of Palestine has been a real challenge in U.S.-Saudi relations as it has been with most uh, relations that the United States has in the Arab world and larger Muslim world um, and much of the world. Um, and it, what's been interesting, it, what's interesting in the book is to see, first of all, how the Saudis play it earlier on, early on, very early in the history when, it, when the United States uh, supported partition and then recognized Israel. The king sent letters, and I talk about this in the book, saying this is going to be enormously, an enormous problem for you in the region. This is an enormous problem. We will not sacrifice our relations with you for it. But rest assured, it's going to be a problem. And so the Saudis sort of are in the game, but they are not a frontline state. And because of that, um, they have always been viewed by the United States as moderate because they um, would continue to work with the United States even though there were these real differences. And in part, I argue, it's because you had this shared fear of communism. The, the Saudis and Americans could always change the subject. You couldn't do that with other states. Now, after 1990, at the end of the, the class of the Soviet Union, you couldn't change the subject anymore. There was nothing to change the subject to. 
And so it became a real problem. And, and especially different kings had different views on it. But Crown Prince Abdullah, this was a very pressing issue for him. And he was very annoyed that the Bush administration decided on a hands-off policy, wasn't going to get involved after 2000. And in fact, then Crown Prince, now King Abdullah, writes a letter to President Bush saying, because of the ongoing fighting and your complete disinterest in it and your complete ignoring of what our interests are, um, maybe it's time for us to go our separate ways. Maybe we should pursue this divorce that we're hearing, so that, you know, be sort of the term that became popular after September 11th. And it, this is important, too, because it gets to the House of Bush, House of Saud conspiracy. This is actually President Bush, 43, presided over one of the worst moments in U.S.-Saudi history, this letter from, um, from the Crown Prince. So the president, sort of realizing how far relations have deteriorated, decides that he needs to call in Prince Bandar, the ambassador, to try to figure out how to salvage this relationship. And they set the meeting for September 13, 2001. That meeting is held. The topic is very different. It's about, it's about the 9-11 attacks. But it sort of shows how serious it got and what an important issue it was, but also how bad relations were before September 11th. Now, where does that leave them today is, is your question. And this, I think we have to very much think about the Saudis' reaction to what's going to go on, what's going on in, Palest in, in Palestine in terms of their fear of Iran, because they're in a pretty sticky situation. They have no interest at this point in funding a Hamas government. It is different to support Hamas than a Hamas government. They're very worried about Islamic groups coming to power, which is, I think, for most of us sort of bizarre since it's Saudi Arabia. But um, the notion, not only that you can democratically come in, but a state that supports a, 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 a party that supports violence is very worrisome to the Saudis who are fighting their own violent opposition at home as we speak. They're not happy about this. But they also see Iran on the move, and they see that Iran, and so their, their decisions on whether or not and how to support the Palestinians in this context will have as much to do with what the United States is telling them as it will with what's going on in Iran. Now, I don't know, this is now conjecture. My guess is the conversations between the Saudis and the Americans now are how are you going to make sure that Iranian money can't get to Hamas? Because it's one thing for the Iranians to pledge support. Another thing for them to actually get there. It's got to go through official wires somehow if you're going to get that kind of money in, which are largely, um, which the United States and Europe have large, considerable influence over. And so there will be real questions about can you make sure the money doesn't get in and how, and what are you doing? And I would think that is where the conversation is. And how the United States and Europe answers that question will probably dictate what the Saudis actually do. There's always the risk of the backlash, and that's probably why Qatar has now pledged the $50 million as well. But as of now, there hasn't been a groundswell to support Hamas. Um, I mean, there obviously is in... Uh, for, for those who voted for Hamas, who voted for Hamas for a whole host of different reasons. Uh, much of that has to do with the lack of corruption. Um, but um, we haven't seen it yet but, yet. but I think more importantly, for, especially for King Abdullah, his real concern is going to be, as it is for most policymakers now, how do you avoid the humanitarian crisis that's coming and still not give money to Hamas? Is there a way to do that? And that sort of 
the tricky situation that everyone's trying to work out. Do they risk um, a backlash? Yes, but we haven't seen, as of yet, a lot of others agreeing to support. But I am sure that there are some very, very angry messages going between the Saudis and Qataris, which always go on anyway, but especially so right now. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that I talk about the book in the book, too, is the fact that of a number of the changes that are happening, one is that you, cannot, you can no longer conduct relations king to president. It was always hard to do that in the United States, but with the tight grip that leaders had on the media in the Arab world, it was easier to do that, perhaps not beneficial to us, but easier to do it in the Middle East. You can't do that anymore now that you have Al Jazeera, now that you have um, NBC, now that you have, you know, and now that you have the host of, of Dubai TV, the host of satellite stations in the region. What? Right, we have Fox News here, but you can't keep the population out in the region the way you could because of the equivalence of Fox News. They're mobilized. They're interested. They're engaged. They see what's going on in the rest of the world. In fact, I would argue that Middle Easterners often get more news and more viewpoints at this moment than we do here in the States. You sit there and you see the channels coming in from the United States, the local stations coming in, as well as coming in from the Far East. It's, it must, you know, it's, it's, it's whiplash for populations that hadn't experienced that in the past. Because of that, it's important to build, think about how you build alternative relationships. And I do talk about the fact that public diplomacy is very important. And thinking about how we engage on education and how we try to reach out to populations is crucially important. We are doing a disastrous job of it, but we cannot recreate that kind of senior, very, very senior official-only relationship. That's not the whole answer, because even if we had a magnificent public diplomacy strategy and the fire hose of funding was still going out, we would still have enormous problems. So I don't want, but I don't want to underplay the importance, and I talk a little bit about what a huge victory it was in Saudi Arabia when USAID put $100,000 to help Duke partner with Afat College in Jeddah for an engineering school, to build an engineering school. It was one of the few things we did that, for the local population in Jidda, was regarded as very beneficial. And we got enormous public support for it. It cost us $100,000. $100,000 in midst of what we are actually spending is a drop in the bucket. And yet that was something that was, was, was noted and had an immediate response on America's standing in Jidda. I'll take that bet. I'll take the bet that they'll still be here. I think many of my colleagues are reluctant to say that because they don't want to be the ones saying that the Saudis are an island of stability in a sea of instability, like Carter said about Iran in 1978. I don't see the kinds of cleavages. <laughs> I don't see the kinds of cleavages that usually one sees before um, a, a massive change in government. I don't see the kinds of cleavages either within the royal family. Um, the population is going to have significant problems. There's unemployment, bad education system, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see that organizing yet. It may change. In five years, I may have a different answer. Um, but that may change. Um, but I don't see those kinds of cleavages yet forming. Um, what I think, I think this fear of the fall of the House of Saud has 
paralyzed the United States policymakers. If a, if a leadership's not going to be around in 10 years, why build a policy? Um, I think they will be around. Um, and I think the question is sort of who is going to be leading. And there's a lot of questions about that. But right now, if you go to Saudi Arabia, there is a sense of optimism because King Abdullah is in charge and he is opening up space for the population. And there's not the same confidence that those who are going to come next will continue with that kind of openness. And that's why I do believe um, there is actually a moment for a lot of things to happen. And it's an important moment for the U.S. to think very carefully about how you build some of these programs um, that were just sort of we discussed. And also how you don't get so close to Abdullah that you undermine him, but you allow him and support him to make the kinds of changes, uh, continue to make the kinds of changes that I think he's been making. Rachel, thank you very much. Good job. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.